Welcome to Aperture. We're in conversation with the people thinking and doing things differently. If you like the podcast, please check out our other content on aperturehub.co. Welcome to the Aperture Podcast. This episode is part of our series on the future of work, which is brought to you in collaboration with Trezio, a financial services platform for self-employed workers. And for this episode, we are with Leticia Vito, who is a renowned speaker and writer on the future of work. She's also editor-in-chief of Welcome to the Jungle, which is a platform for recruiters. And Leticia is here in Geneva. She's in town because she's promoting her new book, which is called De Labeur à l'Ouvrage. And it deals with the shift in employment from paid full-time work to a world which is made up much more of craftsmanship and freelancing. I think the place to start with this book, Leticia, is it's very much the product of your own personal journey. So could you maybe just tell us how you arrived at this point and what motivated you to write this book? Thank you for inviting me first. Thanks for coming Super. on. <laughs> um, yes, I, I, I started writing about work because I was unhappy at work. The reason why I picked this subject was that I realized that it was a large enough subject to uh, for me to be able to write about history, sociology, economics, uh, psychology, and, and all the other subjects that I'm interested in because it deals with all these things. So intellectually speaking, it's a, a, just the perfect subject. And and the second reason was that uh, on a personal level, I, I, had, I, hadn't, I hadn't solved the question of how do you, how, can, how are you happy at work? How can you be happy at work? what can you how can you find a place that fits and where you, you know that makes sense to you and, and and possibly others too so how do you find meaning and revenues at the same time and when i i, I used to work for a company a, a computer services company and i was extremely miserable and it was um it was really not only labor, but but uh, complete alienation. And I changed jobs a first time and became a teacher. And I was a teacher for, for eight years and liked my job, but then found a, another form of alienation, which, which was its repetitiveness and yeah. dealing with the idea of doing the same thing over and over and over again with all those you know yearly rituals beginning of the school year, yeah. end of the school year, exams, the, the yeah. exams and, and, and this, these, you know, very repetitive rituals have this paradoxical effect of, um, giving the, giving you the impression that time flies. It's paradoxical because you think that something repetitive will make time last longer, <laughs> feel longer. It's the opposite. So eight years happened extremely fast. I had my two kids and all of that. And then I had this kind of panic. Literally, I had panic attacks. Panic attacks at the idea of being in the same place, doing the same thing, twenty years from now, with the world moving at a fast pace, and me being in the same place, doing the same thing in the same way, 
that the previous generations did. That led me to the realization that I had to find a way to do something else. And that was uh, literally a, a quest that took um, a couple of years. Uh, it led me to leave my country, France, uh, leave my position as a civil servant in the in the French uh, Education Nationale as a teacher. Uh, I joined an American tech company based in London and did recruiting for that company for a couple of um, for a couple of months. Uh, didn't like it either. Still not found the thing. And then left the company and started my own. And I probably needed that transition of being employed by another company before I could start my own. I wasn't ready yet. I needed all these steps before I could create my own company. And that was now a bit more than four years ago. And I would say that I'm pretty certain that in four years I will still have that company and be self-employed. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's it because it's a flexible enough vehicle for me to do different things and transition from one job to another, from one subject to another with more autonomy. And, and, and I do find a lot of pleasure at work and, and I, I like what I'm doing now. So, so your, own, your own experience is one where up until now, every job had trade-offs. So the teaching job had flexibility, but it was monotonous. The job working for the American tech company, I presume was quite well paid, but it was, but had alienation and other shortcomings. Actually, the teaching job was not that monotonous. It was right. quite exciting because I could do, I was had a lot of autonomy and I could teach my students lots of things about American politics and history. It was very interesting. The problem is it was extremely badly paid. Ah. I mean, very badly paid. And because it was so badly paid, it signals to the rest of the to the rest of society, namely the French society, that you're not worth much. And I had uh, probably there's a part of me that's ambitious and that suffered from the way other people looked. You were looking at me, someone with no value. And yeah, I know there's this confusion between price and value, and it was I definitely felt it. And had I been a you know a professor with tenure at an American university probably doing a bit of the same thing, I may not have left. And the bit about the book that's most optimistic is this idea that, so we've gone through several cycles, right? So we used to have boring jobs, but that came with a bundle of benefits. And that bundle of benefits got unbundled and jobs got unbundled. And, but when you look forward, you see the possibility for people to do meaningful work again on their terms, right? So can you just maybe talk us through um, exactly that sequence and why, you th why you're so optimistic about mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I call the contrat de labeur, the, 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 it's this idea that in the Fordist age, as in, you know, the, uh, on, the work on, uh, the, on Ford's assembly lines, you had a very repetitive job most of the time you had division of labor and subordination but in exchange for that type of uh, alienating work you had a bundle of benefits not only stability uh, but also a good wage that you know that you knew would get better and better because you had powerful unions fighting for you um, and a good share of the pie 
basically. You had uh, social protection and health insurance, retirement, future revenues, paid holidays, uh, political identity, etc., uh, etc. Et and uh, the, the promise of upwards mobility for your children. Um, and all of this made the relative alienation um, somewhat acceptable. And uh, when we say today that a lot of people are you know that the new i i often hear the new generation doesn't want boredom anymore anymore as if the old generation liked doing repetitive <laughs> yeah. jobs and boring things of course not it's just that yes the bundle the trade-off that came with this alienation is uh dwindling away and now obviously the new generation is questioning um the uh, is questioning the alienation that used to come with the trade-off and uh, so I don't think it has anything to do with one generation being fundamentally different from another, but rather it's systemically one type of contract of, of deal that is not what it used to be. So the, the, the deal is today that you still have alienation, you still have division of, of labor and subordination in most jobs and organizations, but you have a lot fewer of the benefits that used to be the trade-off. Wages are stagnating or declining, job security, forget it, um, social protection, not quite what it used to be, pensions, we know they're not going to be the same, uh, access to housing that used to be a part of the bundle, I forgot that when I made the list, yeah. uh, access to housing is more and more of a problem. Access to credit. Access to credit yeah. and access to housing because you can borrow money, but yep. it's just not enough to buy a, an apartment. I mean, if you have a secure enough job, you have access to credit, but even with that credit, you can only have a 10 square meter flat for that money because you know the, the real estate prices in the urban centers where most of the jobs are have gone up uh, tremendously. So you've talked about how the bundle is being unbundled. And you said that younger generations don't want boredom anymore. But what it seems to me you're saying is they're getting boredom without the bundle, right? So the worst of the worst. Um, yes. So, but your book is essentially a very optimistic view of the future. So why are you so confident that things will be better for, from, from here on? There are a few reasons that lead me to be somewhat optimistic because there's also a part of me that's uh, pessimistic about the present and I'm not naive and I yeah. know that right now things are not looking good. But um, there are a few, I call them the pioneers of the future of work that are showing the way and that are changing aspirations, culture and probably organizations to some extent. Um, those pioneers are the freelancers and makers and IT uh, developers who only want to be self-employed and autonomous and who created the open source system and who, um, you know, changed the culture of, uh, of the workplace and workspaces uh, and, and collaborative tools and, and collective intelligence and etc etc all these things really started with the this it crowd at the beginning of the internet by the way the first co-working space was, was just was, was created a bit more than 20 years ago that's so just a good example and today co-working is this huge business and it's it's a huge industry because all the other corporations are turning 
to co-working as a way of you know being more modern and 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 uh, more uh, appealing to the, the younger generations so um if you take yeah if you take the it developers who are self-employed some of them manage to work remotely because they just don't want nine to five constraints and increasingly salaried workers in these organizations have obtained uh have obtained some extra flexibility that they didn't have at work and that's changing management uh, because once middle managers who were very very reluctant to accept it find out that you know the that companies are still that everything's still fine that everything's still working then they accept that you know flexibility as a default can be possible and that's changing life for, that's changing the, also the way you can balance work and life that's changing the way um you know presenteeism was yep. controlled uh, very strictly um it's it's changing things to to my mind quite profoundly so so, so the same the same factors that caused work to become unbundled so if we so improvements in telecommunications that allowed you know, work to be globalized, for example, and the same factors that have led to some, to some degree to feelings of loneliness and isolation. You're saying those same factors can, can actually provide agency to people to get a better bargain. Yes. Because, because they can, because it's been unbundled, they can sort of demonstrate their own individual worth more easily and therefore achieve higher pay and better conditions. Well, some of them can, and especially those with the skills that are in high demand on the market. Now, the question obviously is, what about those with skills that are not in yeah, high demand? Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up. <laughs> and, and yes, of course, things are much more difficult for them. They have the precariousness without the, with any of, of you know, the freedom. And uh, although sometimes with the same level of precariousness and low pay, some of them prefer the flexibility of platform work yep. because they can choose their shifts because they can choose exactly how many hours they work and it's easier to juggle the constraints of you know having a family for example and looking after your children uh, whereas if you work for um, a less flexible company with on a zero hour contract sometimes uh, on top of that you have the cost of transportation in, in strange hours of the day or you have the cost of you know finding a way to look to have to find someone to look after your children and so you know with the same level of pay sometimes a bit flexibility on the side of the worker is indeed a little bit of a gain now for most that's not enough obviously and but that's more a question for public policy than it is a, a question for individuals because there is only so much you can do when nothing's regulated and when you have no safety net and when you have no training institutions to help you transition to a different career career there's only so much you can do on your own when you're not well connected so if we if we accept that some people prefer the autonomy that comes from an increasingly sort of unbundled workforce or, or you know or remote workforce or however we want to describe it and if we assume that some people have the skill sets and um to be able to bid up their own paying conditions so they're they're, they're two groups 
in the workforce who are everything else being equal happier than they would have been in before what what about everybody else because how how do we get better conditions for all of those people that essentially preferred the old paradigm of boring job but mm. you know a, a good bundle of benefits versus versus boring job and very few benefits and it could even be worse right boring job few benefits and very precarious hours, zero contract, zero contract. Absolutely. You can have division of labor, subordination yeah. and precariousness and low pay. Yeah. You, you can have all of the bad things. But what is it that makes all of the bad, this, this type of deal possible? It's a society where, you know, you can prey upon the weak. It's a society where there is no protection whatsoever, no redistribution of wealth. Uh, it all boils down to what kind of society do you want? Do you want something that looks more like the Danish model or do you want something that looks more like the UK model? And and that's fundamentally a political question. Okay, so how how does the government... Is, is it through raising the minimum wage? Is it... Is it, it seems to me in, in the new model that an awful lot of responsibility gets transferred from employers and from the state yes. to the individual. So should should the state be picking up some of the responsibilities that got transferred from corporations, for example? I mean, so in mm. the US, the government tried to intervene into providing or at least mm. underpinning the healthcare provision, right? Is yeah, that, yeah, that's, is that that's, the way the government should move into? Yeah, that's a, yeah the, 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 tr- the trap or the thing that you shouldn't do is do like, uh, you know, the, what the government did with Walmart in the US. Um, it's called the Walmart effect, that you have jobs that are so poorly paid that most people are on medic- Medicaid. Yeah. Uh, they have, you know, health insurance uh, provided for by, by, by the state. And they have, sometimes they even need food stamps. They, they basically depend on government programs because they're too poor to have a decent life. So what, in a way that's like, you know, having the government subsidize the company like Walmart so that they can pay a price that's too low, that's not, that doesn't reflect the, the real cost of labor. Uh, yeah. So it basically pays for if you distinguish between production and production and the reproduction of the workforce, it doesn't include the reproduction of the workforce, obviously. It doesn't include healthcare or yep. retirement or any of that. So how can that be possible? Um, and in that case, I believe that in the case of Walmart, the minimum wage is definitely a solution. Now, your question is probably that with self-employed people, there is no minimum wage because they charge their companies they charge something, it's a price, it's a supply and demand, and the, the things that were implemented for salaried workers do not protect the self-employed. There's no minimum wage. Now, that's not entirely true because the city of Seattle managed to um, you know, make the concept of minimum wage apply to the self-employed drivers of Uber and other pla- and, and other platforms in the city of Seattle. So there are ways of doing it, so long as you recognize that, uh, you know, freelancers are not exactly like any other corporation and that, you know, you, you can in fact transfer some of the legal apparatus, some of the legal framework that was designed for salaried workers, you can transfer some of it and adapt it to the world of freelancers to create new protections. So you can keep 
you know, the flexibility to make the business model of companies somewhat viable. But some things that they do shouldn't be possible because it doesn't include the negative externalities that they create. Yeah. And that's just economic nonsense. And if we think about those new forms of, of organizations, so you've, you've mentioned one, which are platform companies. So platform companies sort of increasingly coming to intermediate between consumers and freelancers. What are the responsibilities, do you think, of those platforms? And then what are the responsibilities that they're currently not assuming? And, and is that where the government needs to step in to, to, to regulate, to make sure that they do internalize those externalities? Yes, but it's a complex question because in some cases uh, those platforms behave in every way like an employer and then it's um, you know a form of salaried work that maybe shouldn't be possible. I say maybe because it, dep- it really depends on, on the platforms and the work conditions. And if, if that's the case, then it's simple enough. I guess the laws that are out there are enough to you know, just basically uh, say that model's not possible. But in other cases, uh, the platform is truly just an intermediary. And then if you give that platform responsibilities towards the workers, then you presume that the platform is an employer. And if you do that, you create a form of subordination. You will make, you can make the platform give more benefits to the worker. But that means that the worker will become dependent on the platform for those benefits. But if they really want to be independent, they will want to have a business outside of the platform. Think of all the Uber drivers who want to have a business outside of the platform. They give you their business cards and yeah. they say, you know, we can bypass the platform and uh, I can, you know, make a, a great personalized service for you and take you to the airport and show you the sites and, and all of that. But if you if there are benefits attached to working via the platform, then there is no incentive for the worker to be truly independent and develop their business outside. So it would make more sense to create protections that would can benefit all self-employed workers. Yep. So as not to create an incentive for them to work via platforms. Platforms can help them access a customer base they wouldn't otherwise have. But the danger for them is to become too dependent on the platform to find those customers or and to get benefits on top of it. So there's there's a lot to unpack there. So so one 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 question would be whether you could have those platforms provide benefits in aggregate, i.e. Um, you could have you know a, a a kind of benefits pot, if you like, that sits outside of the platforms, but to which anybody you work through, any platform you work through, contributes. That could be that could be one answer, could it? Or do you think it's 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 that's looking at it the wrong way around, and it should be the benefits should should be provided by the state, for example, and then they sit completely outside of the platform world. How, how do you see that? The incentive should be for the worker to charge enough so that the price includes those benefits. Okay. Ultimately, the customer is the one responsible. But you're right, the um, the platforms the, the the platforms do take what is it 30 25 or 30% of that price, so uh, obviously the 
could be a way to make them contribute. It's a large enough margin for them to pay for something. And if it's an aggregate, then at least there is no incentive to work with one specific platform rather than the other, in which case you would emphasize the winner-take-all effect uh, by creating incentives for workers to work with the bigger platform, yes. the biggest platform. You've written a lot about this um, idea of internalizing versus externalizing network effects, right? So so not all platforms are created equal, and some platforms are very good at, at helping to um, to elevate this sort of individuality of the peop- of the freelancers that work through them versus one you know the ones that commoditize the individuals who work for them, like Uber does, right? Because you know, you call up a driver, and it's you know you know what the only thing that changes is you know the car, the rating, but yeah. and you get no choice as the as the end consumer versus others where you know the the you know exactly who you're contracting mm. and they can ch- charge a different price because they've got a different rating and so on so is there some way for the government to enforce that you know enforce mm. In, mm. enforce or oblige platforms to share those externalities are, are you referring through... to the difference between aggregator and platforms yes so the bill gates definition of a platform is is uh, is an entity that, that creates more value than it takes yeah how do you get aggregators to become platforms and c- can the government do that through share mm. forcing them to share data and, and ratings portabilities mm. and things like that mm. was it ben thompson who wrote this amazing piece about the difference between aggregators and platforms it was yeah my piece was about you know platforms to empower individuals yes. yeah. to basically show who they are and and find customers who want them for who they are versus platforms who commoditize people and have where the customers basically buy a service rather than choose a person and a good a good difference would be to or a good comparison would be to compare Deliveroo with TaskRabbit uh, yep. two platforms that I uh, sometimes uh, use in 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 London so with Deliveroo you purchase a meal and it gets delivered you can add a tip because you know there is a human uh, involved somewhere, um, but you don't know who that is. And you just add a tip because you, you're a decent person and, and that's the, the right thing to do. But basically you will barely even see the person. They will, if, if it's raining outside, they will be wearing a helmet and, and, and you won't even see who they are. Versus TaskRabbit, where you you do choose a category. Let's say you need... Um, you know, people to do some uh, housework and or to repair furniture or to do some uh, plumbing work or electricity work, you will choose someone with expertise. Yep. And in fact, you might even trust a profile, a, a person who charges a lot more than a person who doesn't charge a lot. Uh, and there are huge differences in terms of uh, how much they charge. And, and for sure you choose a person rather than just a service and then you might even get new ideas of things that they could do in your in your home if you if you need help so that's a that's a huge difference if the answer is turning aggregators into platforms and forcing them to share the network effects that they're currently internalizing can the government do that is is you know is would it be enough to to oblige them to share data to um, force them to allow for rating sharing, that, is that kind of could, could the government in, in, you know enforce that kind of change between aggregator and platform? 
When it comes to individuals, I'm not entirely sure how being forced to share ratings will have such a big impact and, you know, make it possible to turn aggregators into platforms. I, I don't see it because when you when you look at Uber drivers or delivery riders, by the way, delivery riders don't even have uh, ratings, do they? This grade, this mark that you have that's 4.7, 4.8, what kind of value does it have if you want to start another career somewhere else? Not that much, unless it's 4.999 or something, yeah. in which case you just take a picture of it and that's the data. But you, um, can, but you can imagine a situation, so I, I take a point, which is all it does really is it helps you to get, you know, to get rides quicker on Lyft, for example, right? Yeah. Which is, you're right, it's no panacea. But if they promoted the individual more on Uber, you might have favorite drivers, for example. So rather than just calling for a driver, you could call for a specific driver yeah. who's got a really nice car. I mean, in, in this city, it's the ones that have the Teslas that you'd like to be able to call, right? Yes. Or, you know, or you know, really charismatic, you like chatting to them, whatever. But mm. none of those things are possible. So can you can the government from exogenously kind of enforce these changes on platforms? Forcing them to share data is always a good idea, but there are lots of types of data that can be useful for a number of reasons, um, be it um, collecting information about the workers, uh, knowing who they are, how they drive, why they do what they do, how many cars are out there, information and data to help with public transportation services, to help with urban planning, etc. So there are many reasons to collect data better. I think you're absolutely right on this. Data sharing would be a great thing. Um, allowing people to port their, their ratings would be a good thing, but mm. marginal. It wouldn't be marginal in the case of TaskRabbit or, yes. or LinkedIn or, yep. or etc. But then there are already a few protections in place with uh, GDPR. It seems to me that, that if you really want platforms to offer it, op- operate in a different way, the economics have to be different. right? And I suppose... That what you really need, if you if you sort of take a sort of more macro view, is you really need the consumers. I think you even said this, right? You need the consumer to bear the full cost of the services they they buy. Because what we've really seen so far with everything you've talked about, the unbundling and so on, and the platformification of work, and is a massive transfer of wealth from consumers, or sorry, from workers to consumers, right? Yes. So there's a brilliant report on Uber, for example, that shows the massive amount of consumer surplus they've created. So the cost of the labor has gone down and therefore a massive surplus has been created on the other side, the, the consumer surplus. And Uber's captured a small part of that, but not very much. Mm. Most of the benefit, or you know, the vast Went majority of the benefit is the consumer. Mm. So what you really need is somehow to the consumer to pay more. And in a way, the consumer, by not paying the full cost of services, is, is hurting themselves because they're also workers. So how do you do that? And is that, is that where the government can make more of a, an impact by trying to create some sort of pact between consumers and workers? Well, sometimes even of, of price control. I'm not sure I'm, I'm 100% in favor of, of the idea. I was being um, a bit provocative on purpose, but it's a question that I never see out there in the open. And it, it's, it's not such a stupid question, in fact. Well, in a way, craft... You know, the, all the, 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 this move to craft goods and artisanal goods is that in a way, right? Because it's almost like the consumer is prepared to pay much more than the marginal cost and is prepared, therefore, to subsidize people who want to pursue their passions. So how did the craft movement come about and how, and how could it be extended to other things? I mean, you know, 
and, and or does it just come back to the same point which is some people have skills where they're in a better position to to um get fair value for those skills versus most people who are in danger of being commoditized i i don't think that or, or rather the uh, the the idea or the vision that you know there are only the elite few who are creative and smart and basically you have the geniuses on one hand and all the other stupid people on the other hand i think in fact most people have some kind of unique maybe skills is not the right word but unique things that they can that they can contribute that that, that they can give uh unique personality, some unique network of individuals that they are surrounded by. And it all boils down to the definition that you want to give of craftsmanship. If craftsmanship is making something beautiful with your own hands, then uh, obviously some people would be better at it than others. But if craftsmanship is doing something in a unique way with autonomy, responsibility, and some creativity, making it yours, then there are lots of things that can be done artisanally. There's one th- last thing I'd like to get you on when we, t- when we talk about platforms, which is, have you ever read that? Re- it was a brilliant article. I think it was in um, New York Times and it was called The Spy Who Fired Me. So I found it through um, Tim O'Reilly's book. I just think we should say one thing about platforms, which is, you know, they tend to well, quite often get a bad name for exploiting workers and so on. But what his argument is that workers' practices got a lot worse before platforms came along. And so the, this, this spy who, who fired me was all about the software that was introduced long before platforms came along that recorded people's hours and stopped them ever crossing the thresholds where they might have to pay them full social security and full benefits. Mm. And so I just think it might be worth maybe just debunking some of the views around yes. platforms because it's not as black yes. and white as all platforms are bad. Yes. Yeah. The, same, the, the same is true about Amazon uh, about Amazon warehouses. Yeah. I'm not saying it's fun to work at an Amazon warehouse, but it's exactly the same to work at a La Redoute warehouse. There was a, yeah. there was a case a week ago or a few days ago in France where um, a guy was uh, fired for eating a tangerine at work. There were lots of headlines about La Redoute uh, a few days ago in France, and and some people were surprised. They were like, oh, I thought it was just Amazon, right? Or um, I thought it was just delivery riders. In fact, the truth is that a lot of workers, the hundreds of thousands of cleaning women working for service companies who work super early in the morning, super late in the evening with nothing in between. So it's officially a part-time job, but they're too exhausted to do anything else. Plus there's no one to employ them in the middle of the day and they have no social protection and, and are fully precarious. And they're salaried workers and, uh, and, and those are traditional companies that are in no way digitally enhanced. And, and likewise, you know, the new uh, working class, the new urban working class is full of people who don't work for platforms and many of them are very precarious. And the working poor, the vast majority of the working poor in the US don't work for platforms. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, uh, there have been many studies that show in aggregate the platforms have created more empl- employment than they've, you know, quote-unquote destroyed. And also that in aggregate they pay more than the jobs that they've displaced. 
what it reflects is that the balance of power between workers and employers has changed yes. since the 1960s or 70s. And that's, that's the case everywhere. And except for a small niche of workers on specific skills, like, you know, de computer developers and marketing specialists, um, the rest of the workers have are not in the same situation anymore. Um, as their, because of, their parents. Because of globalization, chiefly, would you say? Because of globalization, deindustrialization, uh, the decline of labor unions, uh, different uh, culture of individualism that, you know, weakened um, collective bargaining because of lots of reasons, demographic reasons and, and immigration. And, and if we assume that the, those those trends that you talked about aren't going to go into reverse or most of them aren't going to go into reverse what are the new sort of policy measures that need to come together or what are the actions that individuals need to take in terms of reskilling or whatever to try to to improve pay and and reduce precariousness and what do you think you will see a return of of collective bargaining for example is that going to come back or do you think you will just have to equip ourselves as individuals with better skills and take more responsibility for our own retirement and healthcare costs and so on. So how do you see that playing out? I think training and reskilling and all these things will be more and more an individual thing. But I, when it comes to healthcare, for example, that's not possible. When you look at the American model, you see that's just not yeah. possible. You have individuals who will die at a young age because they simply cannot afford a hundred thousand dollar operation it's just or, or, or a treatment that's too that's too expensive so th th some things uh cannot be uh you know completely uh, dependent on individuals uh, we need some kind of institutions for, for that safety net so where i mean how far should the safety net be that's a question that can be discussed but i believe health healthcare is not something that should be up for discussion because it just doesn't work it's just a system where you have a lower, uh, a lower life expectancy for the many and a higher life expectancy for the few. And, and well, but I, that's not the society that I would want to live in. Uh, but for reskilling and all of that, that's a good question. We had a discussion before the podcast about the age of transitions and, and what it takes for individuals to be prepared for that age of transitions. And I mentioned to you uh, the, the, the book of uh, Linda Grattan, The 100-Year Life, in which she uh, in which she speaks of, uh, of a concept that I really like, the transformational assets. And that transformational assets are a series of, of assets that we have that makes it possible for us to be ready for future transitions and to transform, take new turns, change careers, do new things. And what she says is that we've gone from a three-stage uh, model, life model, where you had training first and then work for about 30 years and then retirement, to a multi-stage life with multiple different phases where you, you the, the stretching that career the same way to 45, 50 years is just not viable because we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to sustain it physically mentally emotionally etc and so she says we'll go to a life of many transitions and we'll probably have not only multiple jobs but also multiple different careers which will involve developing different uh different skills but also developing building different networks and um 
and um, saving up enough money to prepare for these transitions. So there are also in these transformational assets, there are financial assets, there are physical assets, how resilient and strong you are, there are mental assets, how well can you learn new things, and there are social assets, how strong are you and diverse are the networks that you have and how will they help them, how will they, sorry, help you transition from one phase to another or from one job to another. But these um, these transformational assets that you talk about, I mean, this makes a lot of sense to me. You know, what are they? And these aren't things that we're currently taught or encouraged to develop at the moment, right? I mean, encouraged to develop. But um, so these are not things that... Yeah. that we're taught in school, right? These are not things that our parents are particularly attuned to. Well, a little, to, right? when, you, when you look at parents today, they're all obsessed with it. And they don't call them transformational assets. But why is the Montessori system so popular today? Why are all parents obsessed with that question? You know, what kind of school do I need for my kids? They all know that that's exactly what they need, even if they don't use that concept. And the Finnish um, school system that recently did away with the subjects, with the school subjects like mathematics, history, etc., etc. They, they just like merged everything and they did away with the whole concept of having different school subjects to focus precisely on, you know, different priorities, like how resilient and empathetic and, um, you know, how strong will the kids be to create new and build new networks and, and how are, how is their emotional intelligence and how can they learn to work together? How can they learn to learn new things all the time? So I think a lot of institu- I mean, people and institutions are asking those questions, but they're yeah. usually asking the questions for children, not for grown-ups. And outside of Finland, it doesn't seem that schooling is changing very fast. No? It is isn't and there's still this obsession with the skills gap yeah the idea that you know there are needs on the market that are not satisfied because the school system doesn't teach them enough and it's this idea that there's always a race you need to you need to adjust the school system and you know create this one more class where they learn a computer language that will be useful in the market and it never works because there's always a a, you know a, a, a delay of two to three to more years before the child or teenager is actually on the market and and it's such a narrow view of you know f- you know matching. Uh, it's a little bit like um, well, this sort of you know the debunked industrial policy of the past, right? Where governments would try to pick winners, and by the time they'd yes you know identified what those winners could be, then the market had already moved on, right? So it's much better, therefore, to take the sort of finished model of teaching, equipping equipping people with the. I don't know what you call them, cognitive skills or whatever, right? Yes. So they can adapt rather yes. than trying to teach them specific skills for a specific purpose. Yeah, I'm a strong believer in developing cognitive abilities in general. And that can be by focusing on poetry or music. So if you you pick anything your child seems to be interested in and let them let them spend the time they want on that, and it can be music it can be drawing or poetry i think these things will you know be in the direction of more creativity and also discipline the the mental discipline of you know yesterday we talked about the ten thousand hours that you need to master 
a, a subject or, or a, a trade. If you want to be able to play the violin, you need to invest 10,000 hours. But the problem is before you invest these 10,000 hours, you need to want to yeah. have the kind of discipline where you will actually practice again and again and again. And how do you get a child or a teenager or an adult to have that kind of discipline, that kind of focus to be able to do the deep work or deep learning that will make it possible for you to learn that craft? And so just to revisit that idea of um, the multi-stage life, because implicit in that idea is that people will be switching jobs much more often. But are we sure they'll actually be lots and lots of jobs in the future. So in other words, you know, much more simplistic question, are we confident that we won't just automate away all jobs, which is, you know, a dystopian view of the future, which you don't subscribe to in your book. And I definitely don't subscribe to it because I, I write a lot about these proximity services, which include cleaning services, nursing jobs and, and, and the like. Uh, people will help the elderly remain at home um, people will cut hair. Of course, you can have a robot to cut your hair, but that's not the reason why people go to cut to have their hair cut. They, they go to have their hair cut not because they want the hair cut, but because they want a massage and they want a conversation with the with the hairdresser. And basically, all of these things are not something that you, that can be automated because you don't go. You don't need these services for the the services themselves but for all of what they entail and that's basically companionship being with someone and having someone to help you and so all these things there are many there are many reasons to believe that there will be a strong multiplication of those jobs uh, first the population is aging and we know there will be more people who will be dependent at some point more people who will have handicaps we know that uh, also, we will consume more and more services. When you look at the way the rich consume today, they lo like to spend their money on experiences. They like to spend their money on yoga uh, lessons. Um, if you look at the job market and you know that lifelong training for all the reasons that we mentioned will become more of a thing, then that yeah. means there will be more and more services uh, associated to lifelong training, training in general. So all in all, there is a lot of certainty that there will be a lot of needs in that area. And a lot of these things, are even the most simple things like cleaning and helping and, you know, helping someone, an old person at home, we're so far from being able to automate it. So I, I generally give this idea of making tea. You Making tea is super tough because no kitchen looks alike. You can have a super small kitchen and then you have to find something that looks like a teapot and that we know from the technology point of view that's actually super hard right because it's something that looks like a teapot can be something that's not a teapot if you don't have a teapot yeah um you have to find the tea you have to ask the person what tea they they want so you have to it's not i mean so many different little things uh that well right now we don't have a robot that can do that and i'm pretty sure that 10 years from now we won't either i don't know about 50 years from now but for the foreseeable future that's not something that's automatable and then again that leaves out the idea that in any case what we need is companionship and not the service itself or we need both together so we're 
quite, I'm quite certain that, that there is a vast number of jobs that will be created in, in proximity services. The, the problems are many, <laughs> well, the difficulties yeah, are many. We'll, but, we'll come to some of, we'll come to some of this. So, so maybe take them in turn. So what, I think one of the challenges is the way that those jobs are perceived, right? So, so often they're perceived as either services that should be given for free, right? Yeah. In a lot of cases. And then where that's not the case, they're quite often perceived as jobs that are done by females, for example. So how do you, how do you make those, and also they tend to be very poorly paid jobs, right? So how, how do you address those things? How do you get that, that kind of proximity work to be well paid or, or paid at all if it's unpaid? Yeah. And how do you get men and women doing those types of jobs? Yeah. The, the reason <laughs> why they're so poorly paid is that the, the, to this day, the confusion remains between unpaid labor and paid labor when it comes to proximity services, because more than probably more than half of the work is today still performed for free. So if you iron your own shirt, it will not be a part of the GDP. Whereas yeah. if you have your cleaning woman do it, or if you bring it to someone who will do it for you, it will be, it will have a price and it will be part of the GDP. So obviously it's very artificial because in terms of the product or the service being done, in both cases, you have an iron shirt, but in one case, it's it's it has economic value, in the other, it doesn't. And and this confusion is so strong in every little activity that's uh, that used to be performed exclusively at home that it affects a lot of the jobs that are still in that um, on that line on that blurred line. So. Throughout the 20th century, a lot of these activities were externalized outside of home, or you had someone external doing it at home. But anyway, a lot of it entered uh, the GDP, but uh, it entered the GDP on the basis that it was something that, that had to compete with the price of zero. So that makes it a little bit hard to price it, uh, to pr price it higher. Um, but there is such a high demand for these services today that the prices are bound to go up and they are already going up uh, for a lot of these services. Again, in the US, uh, it's very hard to hire cleaning women, especially because uh, Trump closed the borders and there are fewer Latinos uh, coming from coming over from Mexico and it's super hard to hire uh, new people. So the prices are high. Same is true in Paris. If you hire someone individually, it will be very, very, uh, it will be priced high. And um, the prices will go or sometimes maintained low because workers doing them are not, are not a workforce who communicate with one another and can negotiate collectively. So they have no history of building unions and negotiating collectively. So they're in a position of weakness uh, with employers, companies or individuals who are uh, in a position of power. And that's changing too, because obviously with digital, all of a sudden there are means and ways of talking with your fellow workers uh, that didn't exist before. And so the new movements, the new unions that are being invented today are being invented in domestic services. And the stronger, one of the fastest growing union in the US is the, the domestic workers union, uh, the American domestic workers union that uh, has the um, support of uh, 
Hollywood actresses like Meryl Streep and that, uh, you know, walk on red carpets and, and, you know, are on TV all the time. So I think that prices will go up. But prices are going up because demand is going up and supply is not going up. But supply would go up if you could get men to do these types of jobs. So, so how do you change the perception that these are, these are jobs that are done by women? And do you agree that if that were to happen, then you might see more pressure on, on pricing? But if that were to happen, you mean if men were to join so-called female jobs in force, then yes, prices yeah. will not go down. Prices will go up. Look at what happened to IT people, you know, when women were computer scientists in the 1950s, it wasn't a job that was valued much. And when when women were pushed out of these jobs, suddenly uh, the jobs were paid much, much more. And it's uh, happened in, in a few, in, well, with a few professions, that professions, uh, and you, you can be sure that if, 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 if a profession becomes more male than there will be stronger unions and somehow it will be valued more because it will also change the perception of value yeah if something and that's the challenge is you don't it's chicken and egg problem it's seen as having no value and that's why women don't go oh sorry that's why men don't go if men were to go value would be perceived as higher so i'm happy that you challenged the premise of that question but you're better way you've kind of answered it right which is you think that if the work becomes better and better paid, that will attract men into the work. That's the idea. That's the right. idea that at some point, this identity issue of, you know, a, a former fac- male factory worker saying, I, I, you know, I can't be a nurse because that's a female job. At some point, this identity issue will be overcome by the attractiveness of the new job if it comes with better benefits and better pay. What about geographical mobility? Because if, so if you assume that the, we're going to see a big boom in proximity jobs and those proximity jobs will eventually appeal to male workers as well as female workers then you should see a big shift in the population right from areas that have been deindustrialized for example or that for whatever reason have suffered economically towards the booming urban centers where people want those proximity services but you yourself earlier in this podcast said that, you know, the urban centers have been priced out of the reach of most people. So how do we overcome that? How do we make it possible and feasible for people to move to cities to do these proximity jobs? A number of things, not one solution only. There's definitely, again, the government stepping in or cities stepping in with more social housing in areas where there's lots of social housing, there's more... Um, Mix, there are more mixed um, groups and it helps everyone. So that's one thing. Then you have obviously companies, re- re- employers, uh, in some cases, employers can offer housing too if they want to attract the people they need. That's a very, that's a, you know, that takes us back to industrial times, doesn't it? You know, where. Exactly. Yeah. It was a thing of the past, but it's also a thing of the future because look at uh, San Francisco schools today. Some of them cannot attract teachers because it's uh, not paid enough for them to afford a, a one room, a one bedroom apartment in, in San Francisco. And basically they have to uh, put housing in the package if they want to recruit people. So that forces again, again, it forces uh, the the change of um, 
sorry, forces to put more value uh, and increase the price of, of labor directly or indirectly. Directly, it's pretty obvious that if you're paid more then you can afford to live there. And that's what you see in cities like Copenhagen. Copenhagen, you know, cleaning woman is earn enough to live in Copenhagen. And Copenhagen is expensive. Yeah. Very, very expensive. So same thing ultimately, which is supply and demand will make it will bid up the 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 wages of people such that they can live in this in the city centre, aligned with the fact that corporations and governments and so on will have to also take steps to make it easier. And also, but there are more things. It's also obviously public transportation because no, there's no, you could live a little yeah. further if it's easier and convenient to come. If the commute is not, you know, hell, then uh, why not? And that's uh, definitely something that more cities need, need to consider. And last but not least, the organization of work itself. Uh, if uh, you allow for more flexibility, then you can have people who work 20 hours in two days, sleep one night on a couch and go back home the rest of the week and do something else with their lives. And that is, you know, going away from the nine to five jobs and from this organization of, you know, working from Monday th through to Friday. Uh, I have another thing to add. Please, uh, please, it's, please. Uh, the idea of making the work, the job more valuable through craftsmanship by adding more tasks that bring more value. If, again, to, you take this example of the cleaning woman, if uh, she doesn't only clean, but also does, um, you know, some, she manages the household and becomes a, a sort of governess and does more and more, and, and why not also accounting, you know, accounting for the household. Oh, then you have a good. job, you have a job that's much more, it's much more qualified, yes, but there will also be much, uh, but it will be paid much more. I am so pleased that you, brought up the topic of the organization of work because that's a beautiful segue to what we want to cover next which is how corporates adapt so how do corporations adapt to this new world where they're going to be working a lot more with remote workers freelancers you know uh, maybe putting it a different way the sort of old world of command and control i guess is not possible and then we move to a world of sort of pay setting based on kpis what comes next? How do we how, how do we manage people? How do we judge their success in a corporate setup? What does the corporation of the future look like? The future of the corporation is already there, is already there. A lot of companies have workforces that are composed only partly of an internal workforce uh, that is composed of salaried workers and the rest are consultants, are interim workers and freelancers and people who work for service companies providing cleaning services providing accounting services providing you name it lots of services that are not that are performed in the company within the company but not uh these workers do not have the same employers as their colleagues do you have statistics on that because while i can think of examples it I, it doesn't feel like it's as pervasive as you're suggesting Precisely, we do not have reliable statistics because, because the statistics on workers focus on the traditional relationship between an employer and a worker, and the rest is basically suppliers, the world of suppliers. And among the things that you purchase as a company, 
There are services, there, there is software that has embedded work in it, but it's a software, right? And you have sheets of paper that you use for your printing machines and you have uh, furniture and whatever. And, and all these things is, you know, things that you purchase. So in, in, in terms of um, accounting, it's not the same thing. And, but the reality behind the things that you purchase is that some of, the, some of those services are actually performed in the company and in place of a salaried worker who could do it uh, for their employer directly. And uh, you have sometimes side by side different workers doing more or less the same job, but they don't have the same employers, they don't have the same benefits, they don't have yep. the same working conditions. And what does good look like in this new world? Because who does this well? Because a little bit what you're describing there is just, you know, the model of sort of outsourcing, right? So that corporations have a blend of, you know, of, um, their own stuff plus externals. But to some extent, they always, they've done that for a long time to save costs. And it seems to me there's a, there's a, you know, there's a way to really capitalize on this shift to get access to the best workers and yeah. to manage them differently. So what does, what does a, the corporation, the future look like from a structural point of view and how do they, how do they manage remote workers? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a company that doesn't have silos, they don't communicate with each other, one that's in charge of purchasing, the other that's in charge of HR. Basically, human resources is something that's much larger than the current definition of human resources. And if you don't have a strategic vision of you know, talent management and recruitment, that includes why not hiring freelancers for short-time or long-term missions, then you don't have a good view of HR. So some companies, small companies or startups do it well because uh, they have, you know, they work regularly with freelancers who they know are very valuable and they don't find it taboo to speak of onboarding a freelancer and sometimes they're even treated like a team member. And the only reason why they're a freelancer is because they don't want uh, another type of contract and because they you know, want to maximize their gains or keep their freedom or, or whatever. And so some companies in a very um, rational and realistic way have a good view of that. But usually they're smaller companies or younger companies and the very large organizations still have silos and they still have these metrics, these accounting metrics that separate things and for them it's taboo to say you need to consider how to onboard to onboard a freelancer uh, even though you actually have to a lot of people are fascinated by hire that if you're aware of hires it's, it's a chinese manufacturing company but they've organized work in a very unique way i think um I don't know if it's holacracy, but it's this idea that they've devolved down massive autonomy to every individual in the organization. So everybody has skin in the game. And is, so is that, is that the kind of model you'll see in the future where the corporate itself is really only sort of a facilitating body rather than actually setting very concrete tasks a, a sort of hub or a platform that's open yeah, like if, and if you yeah yeah where you, employer branding and and consumer branding is the same thing and yeah, where all of the lines are open well that's the idea and and many many companies uh 
many companies pretend that they're in that vision of things. And, and the whole phrase is, I think it was Google act like an owner uh, with, with this idea that, that workers should have equity because otherwise we'll never act like owners and the owners that they should be and that you need for them to be innovative and entrepreneurial enough for the company to move ahead. You need them to have a stake in the company. Of course, the reality is that Google became a huge corporation where people do not really act like owners and where there is division of labor and subordination. But, you know, that's uh, that's another matter. At some point when you grow and grow, is there can you really, really be remain agile? But the yeah. And, and what if and if holacracy is even, you know, the right model, how do you get something like that to scale? Hire is fascinating, but I think the reason everybody talks about hire is it's because it's pretty unique right now. I mean, there yeah. aren't, I don't think we can think of hundreds of examples of companies that are doing this on that scale. I have the same problem with liberated companies and teal companies, which is the concept uh, used by uh, Frédéric Laloux, whose book I, I love very much. Um, What's it called? Just Reinventing our... Organizations. Is it available in English? Yes. Okay. It was written first in English and then translated into French. So teal organizations, liberated companies and holacracies and all these things about new governance and having and having workers who act like owners. The same thing bothers me that bothers you. It's always the same examples that are given, always the same company. So holacracy, there's always an article about how it how it's how Zappos, uh, the company Zappos that was yep. purchased by Amazon, made it famous. And and by the way, Zappos is no longer holacracy, sadly. So there are very very few examples out there, and even fewer of companies that are large and that can provide a model for other companies and let alone super large corporations who need to transition from one model to another. So the best examples are usually medium-sized companies uh, that had a governance model from the start where people were more autonomous and, and they have and that this model has been proved effective in many in many different places in many different sectors and there are more such companies than we know of because we only know of the companies that were in those books that we mentioned yeah. but i think the 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 thing that's pro probably repeatable about hire is that it's, it's sort of decomposed itself into small units because yes. a bit like organic or yeah like a bit cells, like the cells of exactly. an organism yeah a bit like you know a federated governmental structure this same idea, which is the, the the head office department is super small and it's just facilitating yeah. the activities of a very large number of small cells. Exactly. Well, that's the model of, of, of Frédéric Laloux's teal organization, okay. where you uh, the, the metaphor is that of a living organism. And when you have different cells, they have the flexibility to grow organically and evolve like DNA uh, in, in a way that's much more... Adaptive. And, Adaptive, yeah. exactly, than, uh, than the machine of the large corporation yeah. of the Fordist age. And the metaphor for the large corporation of the Fordist age in Lalou's book is that of a machine. Uh, so you have cogs in well-oiled machinery and not cells in a living organism. And in a living organism, each individual in that cell is a microscopic uh, mirrors microscopically the cell itself so it's also a living organism that exists in its entirety and not just a you know a cog 
with one thing, but a living. And so it's just a, a beautiful metaphor. Yeah, it is. Um, that uh, probably speaks a lot to people who want to think about organizations and, and philosophize about it. Yeah, but difficult, but again, difficult to codify. Difficult to codify, but the examples that are given by uh, Lalou and there's this famous uh, com uh, Dutch company called Borzog, which provides uh, nursing services, um, nurses who go provide services at home and who, unlike in other companies, are fully autonomous and can develop that very special, unique relationship with their patients, and they see their patients again and again, and it's part of the um, it's part of the treatment that they have this level of attention and care that someone just giving a shot you know, once in a while will not be able to develop. So it's a very um, it's a, it's a very successful company that's launched in several European countries. What happens to the corporations that are still run like machines? Will they become obsolete and be replaced by companies that are much more flexible and adaptive? And, and how quickly will that happen? Because change happens normally slower than people expect. Yeah. Um, well, the, the problem is that the, the, there is no free market. If there was a free market, they would at some point be replaced. But there is no free market. And most... Uh, sectors, these large corporations are rent seekers that uh, built very high barriers to entry or even barriers to exit to keep their customers. I'm referring to banks, obviously, for example. But you know, in lots of in lots of sectors, you have barriers to entry. You have strong lobbying. You have um, you have situations of uh, rent, um, and so even though they're not agile, even though the design is bad and there are better players out there doing it better it's it will take a long time for these large corporations to be fully replaced by a smaller more agile one we've been talking about the different stakeholder groups that are affected by all the chain all the changes in the future work so we've talked about platforms we've talked about individuals we've talked about corporations we've talked about the state what about startups what role does startups have in reinventing the future of work either directly by introducing new employment practices and um, the kinds of things we talked about or indirectly through innovating new structures new institutions helping people to rebundle the bundle if, if they're in financial services for example what role do startups have so there's a number of startups out there um, who have who develop services for the new type of workers who fall through the gaps of the current safety net, uh, have no access to housing, for example, or no access to training because they're not in the right, because they don't fit in the right boxes. So there are many companies doing it, and and together they they provide some form of a bundle. Um, but in, in, in some cases, there is only so much they can do because, again, healthcare and housing, etc., it's not something that can be done by a startup alone. But I'm very optimistic that uh, some great services will make it easier for at least some of the, some of the most well-off freelancers to have access to all of the bundle. You know, at least some of the most obvious things that can be done are done and will be done uh, thanks to innovative startups that provide new services. I think, I think the reason to be 
optimistic is that the, the, the situation is so acute for so many people right now that we're building services for, for really quite dire situations so that if we can solve the bigger problem of actually raising these, these individuals' income and we've built the, the whole set of new services for them, then things could get much better quite quickly. Absolutely. Just want to get you, it seems like no conversation on the future of work could ever be complete without talking about universal basic income. So just for completeness, I feel we need to cover it off. Where do you stand on universal basic income? Because a lot of people put it forward as the exactly the right solution, right? So because if, you know, to go back to, to revisit this top, this idea of the multi-stage uh, life, yeah. you know, so between those stages of life, you will have periods of no income because yeah. you're changing jobs, you're reskilling, you're moving. So yeah. if you when, set it against that multi-stage mm. life, it's at least intuitively a very appealing idea, right? As a, as a, or an, it seems like an elegant solution, but the counter argument is that it's just, you know, it's a way too simplistic solution to what's a very complicated problem of low income and unbundling of benefits. And so where do you stand on universal basic income? When I left my uh, the American tech company that I worked for, um, I negotiated uh, two months of salary, and that was it. So I, I and it was so stressful because I had to create a business and make it viable in about three months. That's the time that I had, and I was very, very jealous of my French friends who have this these unemployment benefits that when you know, when they leave their companies even willingly they get they get 18 months of revenues good revenues learning new things and even traveling a little bit before and i was very envious of them um, so the unemployment insurance system in france is is uh, is a system that's made it possible for so many people to transition from one job to the next and yep. it's it's amazing and yet it's it doesn't it doesn't really solve many of the problems that we have because um, the people who transition well because they have these revenues they know what they want to do they have the right connections they get the training they have housing they have all these things and for many people the problem is not just the revenues to survive, but, you know, the the connections to reinvent themselves and do something new, the training to get there, the housing to be where the job is, the healthcare insurance if, if, if they have diabetes or are likely to get cancer in five years, the school system for their children if they have to move with their children, and the list goes on. And basically, money is just, you know, if you, if, if money is just for food when you have all the rest, right? Um, so it's, it's not enough and it's just, and it's just survival. If it's on, on top of, so I'm, I'm very much in favor of, of, of this income when it's, uh, when it's combined with the other things that will make it easier for people to transition from one thing to the next and find meaning in their professional lives. Do you think it risks being a distraction? I.e., if we boil it down to something that's too simplistic, then we fail to have or develop the imagination to solve all the other problems. Do you think it risks? That's being- how. That's exactly how it's sold by libertarians. 
it's like it's so much easier let's not bother with the rest of the social protection institutions that we've inherited from the past let's give everyone the sum of money and then you know we can have basically no government services anymore and of course it's just it's, it doesn't work so we're almost out of time so this is this is my last question so i would very much encourage everybody to read the book it's um it's a brilliant account of how work has changed and will change in the future and as we said before it's one of the best things about it is it's you know pretty optimistic about the future but having said that we've discussed all of the sort of changes that need to happen to the to the institutions or the incumbent institutions you know whether it's the state existing corporations um you know in the individuals about how they need to adapt to this new world so there will be necessarily a period of transition and so my question to you is that even if we're optimistic about the future which i think we both are can we get through this transition period without civil unrest we're seeing civil unrest out there so i'm afraid just if we just look out the window we'll i have to say we'll have we we'll, we are going through a period of you know rise of populism and unrest and and so there's a i think the transformation will happen with a strong crisis that has many dimensions. I'm sorry, that's not an optimistic answer, but there will be a lot of pain. And how quickly can we manage the transition, do you think? Hopefully, the more pain, the quicker. Leticia, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're going to tweet a link to the book, and we hope as many people as possible will buy it and read it. So thank you very much for coming to Switzerland and, um, and sharing your vision about the future of work. Thank you Ben and Dan for this warm welcome.